scriptures for this morning come from the book of Acts and 1 Timothy. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Luke writes and says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out threats and murder on the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and requested from him official letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he could find people who belonged to the way, men and women alike, tie them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. While he was on the journey and was getting near to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. He fell on the ground and heard a voice speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Said the voice. Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus, he said, and you are persecuting me. But get up and go into the city, and it will be told you what you have to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless. They heard the voice, but couldn't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand and took him to Damascus. He went for three days being unable to see, and he neither ate nor drank. And 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, Here is a word you can trust, which deserves total approval. King Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them. This is the word of God for the people of God. The worst fights in any relationship, I believe, occur when someone is so convinced of their own rightness, even in their fallibility, that they cannot see the damage that they are doing to the ones that they love. I think most of us have been at that point to some degree or another at some point in our lives. And if you have and you realize this, now you probably know that it often takes a certain degree of shock to pull us out of our self-absorption. Next week, as I mentioned, I'll be gone on a short vacation. And then the Sunday after that, when I come back, we will be remembering Ascension Sunday. Sunday traditionally associated with Jesus ascending into heaven. And we will begin after that season of Pentecost. So today we conclude our series on how Jesus continues to change lives after the resurrection. By taking a little creative license and jumping ahead a bit chronologically. In time that is to the story of how one very hard headed Pharisee had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ after the resurrection, and how that encounter not only changed one man's life, but in truth, all of our lives to this very day. To understand the passage that we read today on Saul of Tarsus and how he became Paul, we have to kind of understand a little bit about his background. Saul was a Pharisee. He belonged to that particular sect of Judaism. And he did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And when after the resurrection, there were these 
groups of Jews that were beginning to claim that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, it made him particularly angry. We, the first encounter that we have with Saul is in the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is testifying to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and he's executed for it. And it says that Saul holds the coats of people that are stoning him. So in other words, he gave his, uh, not only his acquiescence, but his approval to this execution. So Paul, or Saul, very early on becomes one of the chief persecutors of the early church. Saul goes to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to receive letters that give him the authority to arrest people who proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah because Jerusalem was getting to be a place that was just a little too hot to stay around. There are a lot of Christians, of the early Christians, that spread out in towns like Damascus. So Saul says, hey guys, if you'll give me a commission to go around these people up, I'll round them up and bring them back in here for trial. They do so. So this is how Saul ends up on this road to Damascus. Now we might be it might be worth looking into why does Saul not believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Saul probably had a theology of the Messiah that was very much like a lot of other Pharisees and the members of the Sanhedrin were at that time. In fact, we find that the members of the Sanhedrin for the most part, the same ones that uh, since Jesus' death. And one of the big reasons, probably, is that the, the popular thought about the Messiah is that the Messiah would be a political ruler, a military ruler, that would show up, run the Romans out, and reestablish a revitalized nation of Israel. Jesus didn't do that. And so to them, they thought, well, that marks him out then, and the fact that he was executed on a Roman cross made a lot of the Pharisees say, no, it can't be him because our Messiah is not going to die. There was a little bit of a mental disconnect between the prophecies of the Messiah and what we know of in the book of Isaiah as what is commonly referred to as the passages of the suffering servant. A lot of first century Jews did not really put those two things together. They saw the Messiah as a separate being. They didn't realize that the suffering servant and the Messiah would be one and the same person. So that's part of the reason in all likelihood. But to me, what troubles me most about Saul isn't his violence as much, although that's pretty bad. But what troubles me most is the fact that Saul thinks that he is right. He thinks that what he is doing is pleasing to God. He believes that by persecuting the early church, he's doing God's work. And what causes this is whenever a person determines good and evil on their own ability. You go back to the book of Genesis, the, the real problem with Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't so much what they ate as what it is that they were going after. In other words, they wanted the ability to determine what is right and wrong on their own account. They want to be able to make the call like, well, that's good, that's bad. And what we understand from this is that it's God's job to determine the truth of what's right and what's wrong. 
So that's why Saul is in trouble here. He has made that call. He has said, I disagree with these Christians. I do not think that the Messiah is supposed to die on the cross. And so I don't like him, so I'm going to go after him. And he thinks he's right. Historically speaking, the church, and when I say the church, I mean all of Christendom, all of those that would profess Christ as Savior, tend to get things the most wrong when the church has been most convinced that it is right on its own authority. I just recently finished a class on the Protestant Reformation and the, the biggest issue that the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church was going through at that time was that it wasn't Scripture or God that dictated right and wrong. It was the Pope and the infallibility of the Pope. And so it was human beings trying to make the call of this is right, this is wrong. And that's when we get in the most trouble. Even in the early church they had that problem whenever the Jewish Christians either didn't want the Gentile Christians to come in among them or they expected them to be circumcised and prescribed to Jewish law before they could be allowed in to the meals. Uh, people wonder why Christians like to eat so much. That's something that goes a long way back. Fellowship time and eating together. That's uh, basically been considered just second to worship in the Christian community. After Christianity became accepted by the Roman Empire, the, the Christian church began to adopt certain Roman customs to try to make itself more palatable to the Romans. And that was an example of the church believing that it was doing the right thing when it really wasn't. The Crusades used to try to gain political power back for the papacy and to go and retake parts of the Holy Land. Or another example of this, the wars of religion between Protestants and Catholics, witch trials, which we actually had some of those here in our country. And in more recent uh, centuries, the condoning and cozying up to governments and dictators, particularly in the 20th century and also in the 21st. The church in Germany tried to be very, uh, uh, very friendly with Adolf Hitler in the very beginning. So these are things that we have to deal with in our history as the church. In our personal lives, we do the greatest damage to the ones we love when our sense of being right leads us to hurt others. So this is the situation that we find ourselves in whenever we begin to try to take authority over calling what is truth, what is right, what is wrong on our own authority rather than listening to God. And this is where Paul, this is where Saul is at. Keep on calling Paul. He's not Paul yet. He's about to be Paul. This is how Saul ends up in this situation. So he's on the road to Damascus and he has an encounter with the living Jesus Christ after the resurrection. We would say this is an example of meeting the glorified Jesus. Jesus in his glorified state. And really, here's where we can say Saul now becomes Paul. Rather than being ashamed of his past, Paul uses it to try to exemplify the grace that God offers. 
I've always liked this passage in 1 Timothy where he says it is a good and faithful saying to say Jesus Christ, King Jesus, came to save sinners. He says, of whom I am the worst. Paul, whenever he would preach about repentance and salvation and the grace of God, he didn't say it as one who was above it. He said it and preached it as one saying, I know how much, how wrong I have been and how much grace God offers because I've been there. We ask how has Saul's life changed in this encounter with the resurrected Jesus? It's changed so much he takes a new name. And my knowledge of ancient names is not that great, but my understanding is the name Saul meant a great person. I mean, it's the name of the first king of Israel for one. And Paul meant someone who was very small. Saul's life has changed so much, he becomes a new person. He's no longer a persecutor of the church. Instead, now he becomes its greatest champion. I shared with the kids that in some translations, it has Jesus saying, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. What that's referring to is, like I said, whenever you're riding a horse and you're wanting to get him going somewhere, it's the reason why you have a bridle, and it's the reason why some people have spurs, it's to move that horse where you want to go. I've been on a horse before. Thankfully, it was a very polite horse, and it didn't give me too much trouble. But if you've ever been around a horse that isn't that polite, that's not exactly something you really want to deal with too much. So in a way, I think Jesus is having a little bit of a joke at Paul's expense because he's saying, you're like a horse that's being contrary. Paul ceases to be contrary, and he begins to follow a new path in life going to share the good news. And as I said, he uses himself as an example multiple times saying, look, I was the worst and God still saved me and uses me. And not only is Saul's life changed to become Paul, but really all of us are his beneficiaries because Paul is the one that's credited with most going to the Gentiles. And I don't know about, you know, too much about anybody's ancestry here, but I doubt that there's anybody here that is uh, full-blooded Jewish, more likely than not. I've supposedly got a little bit, but not enough to, to claim anything. So all of us that come from non-Jewish backgrounds, we are the beneficiaries of Paul's ministry to the Gentile world. It's the reason why Christianity spread beyond the Jews is because of the missionary work of Paul. Earlier, you might have wondered what I meant about the church being convinced of its rightness and being wrong. There is most definitely right and wrong, and we can know it, but the source of that truth, as I said, is not from us. We do not determine what is truth. It is from Jesus that we gain truth. Saul had convinced himself that he knew the truth, but the reality is he never knew the truth until he met the truth on the road to Damascus. When we as individuals and the church as a whole begin to let Jesus instruct us with his truth and show us where to go, then the evidence of Paul's life shows us that God will be able to do anything he wants to through us. When we surrender our wills to Jesus, 
and allow him to take the reins and we quit kicking against the goats, then we will see the church be the church that it was always intended to be. Jesus can change the most stubborn of hearts and he can use all of us to do great things if we are willing to lay down our claim to the knowledge of truth and experience the real and only truth to be found in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Amen.